Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and a happy uh, Christmas and a merry go year. Hello, merry Christmas, and welcome to a very special festive edition of your own personal Beatles. My name is Jack Pelling, and my festive friend, as always, is it's Robin Allender here speaking with his voice. <laughs> is your because you're a December birthday? It was uh, yeah. You're named after a sort of the Christmas bird. Um. No, uh, I, I'm, no, I don't think I'm named after the bird. I think I'm named after um, an actor my mum fancied in the 70s, um, but I can't remember who it is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, yes, we're recording this on the 20th. Uh, it's my birthday tomorrow. It's the big four zero. Nice. How are you feeling about that? Awful. Oh, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Awful. I don't know. Well, from one um, festive bird to another, uh, our special guest this week is comedian and broadcaster and, would you say, sort of your oldest friend? <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, I mean, definitely one of my oldest friends. So John Robbins is our guest today. And yes, I've known John for about 25 years, I think, something like that. We were friends in school, sixth form. We went to the same university. But it's, it was a really good chat because obviously a big part of our friendship is music. And it's fair to say John is one of the biggest Queen fans around. Yeah. <laughs> but And he's never quite clicked with the Beatles. So, mm. I mean, and this is like a lot of our friendship has, was a kind of, you know, me telling him how good they are and him not really listening and taking on board. So this was a really good chat because it, he, before the episode, he listened to a lot of Beatles. Uh, we had some really good conversations about the Beatles and kind of comparisons with Queen. Kind Do you of think, is that one of the main sort of, of dividing wedges in your shared musical experience? Was it ever a, a, an obstacle with us? Not not really. I think there's always been certain kinds of music that I've liked that he hasn't really... Like, he's never taken to Scott Walker. He thinks it sounds like music from a kind of musical and things like <laughs> that. And, um, you know, and there's certain stuff. Like, he's got so into Will Oldham, uh, Bonnie Prince Billy, that they're a kind of... B-sides only available on cassette that are kind of some of his favourite songs ever released that I haven't quite gone down as that kind of obscure a road as he has with, with things like that. So we ha yeah. we do diverge with certain things, but we have a lot yeah. of crossover. Um, and there's a lot of Beatles chat. I mean, whether we get to convert the uh, sort of Beatles cynic, yeah. um, you'll have to wait and see. But there's lots of other chat about Frank Zappa and... Um, you know, as Christmassy Queen songs and the overlapping of 
you know, Queen obviously very influenced by the Beatles and stuff, so there's some good chat about that. Um, a few sort of cans were opened throughout the podcast as well. So yes. we recorded it a couple of weeks ago, and it's by far the longest one we've ever recorded. Um, yeah. I think we we nearly went on for four hours, so we're quite feeling the effects of the cans towards the end. Yep. So I would recommend, um, as it's a festive podcast, that you crack one open now and sort of you know, try and, try and uh, keep up with the pace and then you'll probably enjoy it yes. <laughs> a lot more. Yeah, I mean, and I think listening back, there were things John said that I, I think we really should have challenged him on more. <laughs> and also there are some Queen comparisons we should have talked about more, which is that I can't believe we didn't talk about Abbey Road Side 2, which is such mm-hmm. a clear influence on Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. And I really wanted to say my comparison which was that the, the um queen of friends and the beatles are seinfeld but i didn't quite get to that <laughs> you can think you can learn more about the human condition from seinfeld whereas friends is kind of slightly more populist anyway it doesn't matter so before we crack on with john robbins we're not going to do much uh, correspondence this week um even though people have been emailing in and we do read them all thank you very much we're, we'll save them for a, a rainier day um, but one thing that we have to really mention is that this week um, Paul McCartney released an uh, album, the long-rumoured lockdown record, or rockdown as he uh, unfortunately calls it, uh, McCartney 3. So um, thank you very much to uh, Paul's people for providing us with a copy of that. Um, we've managed to have a listen to it. Um, it'll be released at the time of you downloading. So, um, yeah, Robin, thoughts on McCartney 3? Uh, yeah, I really, I really liked it a lot. And the first thing that I was struck by is what I love about McCartney too, is the way he's using the studio in such a playful way. So when you think about mm. using a studio uh, and recording everything yourself, part of you thinks, okay, is he going to go down a Bob Dylan route and it's kind of recording the sound of a room, uh, you yeah. know, and players in a room? And it's obviously not that. It's it's full of beautiful artifice you know like nice Mm. crunchy drums and compressed and you know tape loops and layers of guitars so i I love i love all that i think that's great and i think some of the songs are beautiful as well what do you think yeah um yeah similar reaction i i think from an arrangement point of view i really love it um it's not as uh you know there's more harpsichord on it than i thought there would be yeah (laughs) 2020 uh, Paul McCartney <laughs> record but he obviously knows that studio very intimately and I think the drumming especially really jumped out at me mm. on this album I think it's so it's like it's almost kind of min- minimalist in a way and yeah and there's definitely you can hear a kind of uh, you know I mean maybe this is a bit too much of a stretch but you can hear elements of hip-hop style production like you can tell he's been listening to bits of that there's some bits that sound quite cut up some of the drum patterns yeah, sound influenced by especially that. that song um the eight minute um, deep deep epic, feeling deep deep yeah. feeling yeah deep deep is it deep deep feeling yeah yeah that's great it sounds like a very sort of modern record i mean there are it's sort of maybe a bit dismissive to call it filler but there is the odd you know track that's not as musically interesting yeah but it's i think it's uh, you know as people are saying it's him not having a filter isn't it and what you're listening to is someone being playful and there's ideas that are kind of unfinished in the same way there are on McCartney too, you know, and that are kind of, and it's just throwing around these ideas and seeing what works. And it's like, it's just nice to see that kind of spirit, I think, that it is yeah, kind of yeah. a bit unpolished and stuff. 
I mean, it really it does go all around the houses. You have like sort of very beetly numbers. Yeah. You know, very rocking. You know, that is it slide in that track that's basically yeah. Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah, it track. does. Sounds really riff, <laughs> quite quite chunky riff. It's nice. Um, and then Lavatory Lil, which when we saw the track listing, um, <laughs> rang the alarm bells. <laughs> yeah. But is uh, actually not as near, as dire as you. I as like Lavatory Lil. Would, I think uh, it's good. That's I the one with the nice great. crunchy drums. I think it's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Kiss of Venus, I really like as well. I love that one. That's my favourite. Yeah. And George Martin has got a production credit on it. Oh, really? One track co-produced by George Martin. So I assume yeah. that that is the, the last track. It sounds like his voice is much younger. So I think that mm. must have been yeah, something have been that he finished longer. during this sort of period. Have you seen the credits for the new Ringo EP? No, I haven't. But Paul's on it, isn't he? Yeah, Paul's on it, and there's a great bit line in the credits, which is Ringo percussion one drum fill. <laughs> He's like crediting one drum fill, which is lovely. It's great. He was number one in the Christmas charts, I think. Is it? Yeah, in oh, America, because um, Ringo was number one in the singles charts, and Paul was number one in the albums. Oh, nice. But uh, yeah, I think his voice on this album is really interesting because he. Has sort of he's always had two kind of voices, and mm. and one is the kind of lady Madonna kind of baritone that he does, mm. which can be a little bit sort of kitsch, but he really sort of embraces that in in this album. Obviously, his tessiture is kind of shifted, and he's lost his. He can still do the falsetto, I think. Yeah, but it's sort of the power is gone, so he mm. uses it in a different way, which is really yeah. interesting. So it has a completely a bit like he started doing on things like Jenny Wren ten years ago. Mm. Yeah, we can hear just, the like fr- he's realised that the quality of his voice has changed, and yeah. it is exactly it has like a new sort of fragile quality, mm. and he really leans into that, which I think is really was, was really great. But that song "Women and Wives," it sounds like he almost sounds like um, Ian Curtis. Yeah, he said <laughs> um, on a video that that was kind of influenced by. Uh, Lead Belly, who's kind of trying to do a bluesy kind of. Oh, voice really? Yeah. It's because it, for me it sounded like sort of, you know, almost Lindy Indie Landfill era kind of editors or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you know? that was great. <laughs> yeah, doing an impression of being good. Um, and it has a quality of. It's interesting that he's got this um, project upcoming with Rick Rubin because the other mm. thing the album really reminded me of is those the American recordings era of sort of late Johnny Cash. That's interesting. They, it's slightly without that kind of the grandiosity of stuff like that, isn't it? It's a lot more silly yeah, and, and it's slight, not you know. so. Um, you know, I think Paul McCartney is re- intending on living for at least another couple of decades. Yeah, yeah, have yeah. That sort of, you know, looking off, looking at your mortality in the mirror type thing. Well, you say that, but I think. I mean, this is. Do you want to hear what I've written about it? Because I think I'd love there, to, yeah. there is a thing. I think there is aging is an element of it, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So appropriately appropriately for a podcast in which we talk so much about Queen, I'd like to read this Instagram post from Brian May while he was on tour in November 2017, which is lovely. Uh, so Munich, he says, Munich morning, I feel lucky, happy, grateful and blessed. Amazing to be waking up to this view in 2017 at an age undreamed of. Somebody once told me it's hard to feel grateful and depressed at the same time. Isn't that helpful? It's usually possible to think of something to be grateful for. So then the job is done. My dad was gone at the age of 66. So for me, all of this is bonus time. Last night, as well as the night before, was the stuff of dreams. I swear there's nothing, nothing like the experience of playing a rock show to a roaring crowd, living and breathing every note, grateful, even though pretty much every bone in my body aches. 
Bry. <laughs> he always ends it with Bry. So, um, but yeah, I love this idea of bonus time. And it's something you become acutely aware of as you get older and you lose your parents. Uh, I think one of the reasons that the Beatles resonate with me is because they are my parents' generation. My dad died last year and he was born in 1945, three years after Paul McCartney, five years after John Lennon. And he was from Darlington, which is obviously nowhere near Liverpool. And yet when I hear John Lennon say, Hey up, before while my guitar gently weeps, I can hear my dad's voice. And when I listen to these records, I can see him and I can hear him and their magic and, uh, and they bring him back. So to hear McCartney 3, it just feels like a kind of miracle because it feels like Paul McCartney is kind of aware of that too. And he is in a sense existing in this kind of bonus time because he sounds full of the joy of living. And the album isn't explicitly about ageing, but you can hear that he's thankful for living. So to argue over whether McCartney 3 is or isn't up there with his, his best is to miss the point, I think. But having said that, the album does show that Paul is still capable of changing my life with a wave of her hand, as he said, <laughs> changing the direction of a song and suddenly making it a kind of pure emotional expression. The chord changes in Kiss of Venus or the way deep, deep feeling suddenly just opens up after two and a half minutes with this beautiful melodic piano pattern. I started the year listening to uh, Bill Fay's Countless Branches and ended the year listening to McCartney 3. And they're very different albums, but they're both made by people in their twilight years, let's say. And, <laughs> and in Bill Fay, you can hear the melancholy. And in Paul McCartney, you can hear the gratitude. And there's a song on the Bill Fay album, which I think sums up everything Paul is here to say and all he's ever been saying, which is love will remain. Oh, mate, that's great. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, very much, I, I feel very similar because my, my dad is about a week older than John Lennon. Yeah. Um, so I've definitely, they, you know, especially their sort of cultural references and the period in which they grew up is identical. So you have Yeah, they, of... they grew up on the goons, you know, they went to the, the Beatles, you know, Monty Python. It's all boiling away there, all those cultural references, you know. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic stuff. And it's so great that Paul, I mean, it just says so much about him that he's writing an album in 2020 that's so kind of joyous as well. Yeah. Because, um, you know, it has been a pretty pretty shite time yeah <laughs> he just doesn't really have a shite time in his arsenal in terms of yeah sort of songwriting stuff he's always the uh, the eternal optimist and yeah but that's the thing i think it's all implicit with paul isn't it like that's why i think like the adam buxton interview is so great but I, I love how paul mccartney is still for obvious reasons because he's so scrutinized but he is quite inscrutable and in the music mm. there is behind that optimism there is a a melancholy and a deep, deep feeling, to use the yeah. song title. And that's not something he t will talk about necessarily in an interview, but it's just, it is there unmistakably in the record, yeah. you know. I mean, the press, some of the press that he's done for this record, I mean, he really is masterful at obfuscation. <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, he was talking to Idris Elba yesterday and it was just, it was a pretty hard to watch interview. Really? But I haven't watched that yet. Uh, I mean, Idris Elder gets his guitar out and plays him some chords that he's learned in lockdown. Uh, this okay. is like, come on, mate, you're talking to Paul McCartney, at <laughs> yeah. least try. Jimmy yeah. Fallon asked him, what's your favourite kind of music? Wow. It's just like, you're not doing him any favours for his detractors who think he's boring. Some, some of um, Paul McCartney's answers, I think, in the Buxton 
podcast were, were perilously close to the best of the Beatles, weren't they? You know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> what, what, what music are you listening to? I'd have to say that, you yeah. know. The... <laughs> no, I'm quite happy for him to sort of do all that in interviews and then pour it into, you know, yeah, definitely. the work, yeah. which is the way it should be, really. Mm. So we won't keep you any longer. Um, as we said, 2020 has been a bit of a, a shit year, but uh, it's been the highlight of my year doing this podcast. So um, yeah. thank you to everyone who's listened. Um, it's been really, really fun. And uh, hopefully we'll be back next year. Um, and if you want to support the podcast and ensure our return or at least aid it, you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash donate. Um, and if you enjoy the show, you can also go to iTunes and leave us a nice review there with, with five stars. And we read them all. They make us very happy and help people find the podcast. So it's really great. Um, so enjoy this conversation with John Robbins. So we've got something very special for our little Christmas outing. Robin and I are delighted to be joined by comedian and broadcaster, half of the famous Bristol band Koyana Skatsi, mentioned in a previous episode. I think actually it's it's one sixth, and that was oh, part really? of the problem. I thought it was a duo. Yeah. There were two, <laughs> three guitarists. That's How terrible. many were in rock? That was the same band. That was the same band. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you haven't guessed by now, uh, thank you very much to the wonderful John Robbins for being with us. Hello to you, sirs. Hello. Merry and, Christmas. Yeah. Merry Christmas to you. We all are wearing our Freddie Mercury Christmas jumpers. Snowhemian <laughs> Rhapsody, and Freddie's got a Christmas hat on. Yes. No, no, we're not all wearing them, are <laughs> no, we? No, I'm not very festive yet. I don't really gear up into festivities until sort of three days before. Yeah. So, um, I mean, John, it's come up before on the show that you're not uh, exactly a Beatles superfan, but you've um, kindly been doing some research. Um, so can you talk us through what, uh, what homework you've been doing for the episode? Well, I, I said to Rob, I'll listen to every album. Um, that became problematic partly because it's actually like with most bands you can just google like full album and it's there on youtube with the beatles you end up <laughs> with a lot of people posting covers albums from mm. their own band and that's the one on youtube that's got two hundred thousand views <laughs> yeah. so you'd be like listening to it thinking yeah. this is they're very spanish they're more spanish <laughs> than i remember and then, like, you go down and there's someone going, this not Beatles, capital letters, give me Beatles. So I'm, I'm guessing that there's, they're, like, very strict with their rights and copyright and stuff. So they are, yeah. I, I don't own the entire back catalogue myself and mm. I'm not, I don't have Spotify. So it kind of, it was a bit like, I had some of them I just had to Google individual songs to kind of yeah. put the album together myself. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? Apple's got such a hold on the copyright of things like that. Because I tried to watch the video of All You Need Is Love today, and there's only like mm. 30 seconds of it on YouTube. What, the sort of satellite one from yeah. Abbey Road? Really, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they are they are pretty tight on that, but uh, you're not a Spotify user or streaming services. I've got, like, I had the full version for a while, but I'm just still in love with iTunes. Yeah. Um, and it's weird when you... Because it's been a while since I have struggled to find music for free that I don't own for research purposes, let's say. Yeah. Because, mm. like, if I want an album, I'll just buy it. Mm. But it does make you feel... It's that feeling I had sort of, like, in the earlier days of the internet 
where you're mm. sort of this such a backward approach to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but, it's that sense of entitlement that you have where you're almost like flipped into a rage when you can't find something in pristine quality immediately for free. Yeah, yeah. yeah and especially when you're thinking, look, <laughs> I, just, I don't want to listen to it again and again. I just want to listen to it once and work out why I don't like it. <laughs> no, I'm not trying, to, not trying to defraud anyone. Um, but I should like start by saying I'm not an idiot. And I obviously realise the Beatles are a fantastic band and hugely influential, etc. I'm not like a contrarian who just mm. gets a kick out pretending they think the Beatles are rubbish. I don't think the Beatles are rubbish. Mm. Um, I, I, It was interesting for me as someone who is prone to get very obsessed with musicians and sort of go through uh, big phases with artists and also a lot of artists who were around that period in the sort of mid-60s and late 60s, it was interesting to sort of find out why it is that the Beatles never gripped me and why why wasn't I obsessed with them at some point mm. in my life? Because I've had... They've been in my life at various points. Mm. Um, do, you, do you think it's because you just sort of slightly missed out on having that introduction to them at a kind of young, impressionable age? Because you well, got when when because you're obviously you're, you're, I mean, to anyone who doesn't know you, you're, you're an incredibly big Queen fan and you host the... The Queen podcast. So, what, what was Queen? What was the kind of introduction to Queen? Do you think if it had have been Beatles, you would have gone down that road? Well, no, because the Beatles was around. I remember my dad had a copy of Rubber Soul on vinyl. Mm. Um, I don't remember it ever being played, and I remember him saying that he stopped listening to the Beatles after he realised there was a hidden message in Norwegian Wood. Um, he's quite a religious man, and <laughs> yeah. I think he, mm. he he sort of struggled with uh, duality of meaning. Yeah, mm. I mean, it's, it's not mm. exactly a hidden message. It's more sort of, ex- you know, extensive use of metaphor. Yes, <laughs> yeah, about well, not not a big fan of um, met- metaphor in popular culture. I think, right? <laughs> but <laughs> I like so Queen. I guess it wasn't until all the coverage of Freddie Mercury's death that that particular acorn was mm. lain and that then an grew into a, an enormous forest. Yeah. <laughs> but then, like, through my... I, I remember vividly the Blue Greatest Hits album mm. being something I listened to. That was sort of like the soundtrack to my first ever girlfriend. Mm. And I remember doing my paper round and listening to that and really liking Across the Universe. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the long and winding road, but it's it was sort of th- I couldn't quite get my head round until I started doing the show with Ellis, who's a big Beatles fan, and yeah. you know he references the Beatles a lot and has lots of anecdotes about them, and they're a big big deal for him. Mm. Wasn't really then that I started to question why it sort of it didn't work for me. Yeah, and. I, I think listening to the early stuff, so if we, like, split it into two halves, so mm. I listened to the first mm. four albums and I didn't listen to Beatles for Sale because mm. someone told me if you don't like the first four, then it, that was a real stinker. Well, Beatles for Sale is a <laughs> bit of a... my favourite one. I, I like Beatles ones. for Sale yeah. and... Yeah, but there is there's definitely a school of thought that that was the yeah. kind of slightly churned out one and they were all a bit tired and jaded, you know. Well, I, I think some of the things I don't like are not the Beatles' fault. Mm. So I was listening to the to Please Please Me, and I 
And I thought that this sounds like, you know, Van Morrison's contractual obligation album. <laughs> where it's like someone had to write like 10 love songs in an hour. Yeah. And then you realise well, I mean, there's an element of that's truth essentially that. what happened. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, there, there's, they, they wrote songs as a kind of, this is a bit of business, let's write a song. And, you know. Yeah. I, I remember once, I, I think I got a birthday card that had the Beatles on it and said something about the Beatles changed the world. And, and you, said, you said something like... Um, I don't agree with that, but I know some people who do. <laughs> but like, so you, you, it's not like you are ever anti-Beatles, but you you would kind of joke about because you're such a Queen fan. I think you, you, growing up, I think you sometimes felt the Beatles got the acclaim that Queen sort of deserved. And then, do you think that's true? And then, do you think as you've kind of developed with your kind of uh, you know, relationship with Ellis, it's kind of almost something you do as a kind of devil's advocate thing in terms of that. I, I really like the idea of pretending that there's a whole Beatles versus Queen debate. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so funny because it's not a debate not. anyone has ever had. Yeah. No. But as if they're the two equal titans of British music. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And there's like a battle for who had the most influence on culture. Yeah, people are always <laughs> debating this down the pub. <laughs> yeah. well, are you a Beatles man or are you a Queen man? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, Queen played their first gig with Freddie Mercury about six weeks after Let It Be came out. So, mm. um, so they definitely like there is a they bookend each mm. other's yeah, careers almost. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The torch. That doesn't mean anything, but it's <laughs> no. just a sort of an observation. But I do think mm. there is a lot to be said for the comparison of them. I, I guess when I was getting into not just Queen but lots of music in you know, the late 90s, I, I, I guess I re- it wasn't that I thought Queen deserved the attention the Beatles got in any more than a kind of petulant child's way of I want people to like the thing I like. But I, I, I did f- resent the fact it was a given that there was just this artist who, like everything, was above criticism... Yeah, I think um, that's what I'm talking about. I remember, like, uh, this is probably an- another sixth form thing. You, you're furious about Neil Hannon from the Divine Comedy saying Queen were a joke band. Yeah. And about 20 <laughs> years later, you sort of re- repeated that anecdote and you're still furious about it. <laughs> well, it's because it's a guy from the Divine Comedy yeah, who, who are a band mm. who do sort of joke songs. Yeah. Like they yeah. Do uh, it was just a smug, arrogant way of saying it. Mm. Yeah. And mm. I, th- I think fury like, is undimmed. <laughs> I, it is, I will never forget. I was on the Music of the Millennium program on Channel Four, and I was watching it because I wanted Bohemian Rhapsody to be the best song of the millennium, which it was. <laughs> um, and it was just, it felt. Who's this guy from a kind of? Mm. I mean, they they did the theme tune to Father Ted. Yeah. You can't call Queen a joke, but it's a great song. Yeah. But you know that yeah that, yeah, just, that did rankle. I think in the nineties there was almost a sort of like you had to have your sort of um, controversial opinion cocked and loaded every time you went to promote a record. Mm. So you needed some sort of really you know outlandish. Yeah. But also the nineties was statement. like there was a lot of Beatles around because mm. I remember yeah. vividly when um, oh Christ Free as a Bird song? Free as a Bird came yeah. out and because of like oasis yeah and that scene 
there was the whole, oh, they're just copying the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> so mm. the Beatles was very, very prominent in a way that Queen bizarrely weren't mm. in yeah. the mid-90s. Yeah. They had this very sort of odd period after um, after Made in Heaven came out where you were sort of terrified that everything was just falling apart and you weren't quite sure where they were all at and they would release a computer game and then there would be <laughs> like a new yeah. solo album from Brian May. To but it all, felt a, it all felt a bit like what's happened to Queen because yeah. everything before that was leading up to the posthumous, the final album. Mm. Mm. And, so, and so the Beatles was everywhere. But I think mm. listening to the early songs, a few things became clear to me, mm. which is... I like my sad songs to be sad mm. and my miserable narratives to contain misery. Yeah. And a lot of their songs from, like, the first four or five albums just... And it probably isn't fair to judge them as studio albums as if it's, like, you know, a concerted effort to create this thematic whole yeah certainly not but it's like christ man how many girls can you want to write a letter to and miss and be sad all day and then want to kiss but then actually you want to do less than kissing because you just want to hold their hand yeah and write a letter to them about dancing and you're like i'm gonna it's and it when you listen to it in that way yeah it kind of feels like drivel yeah, but you've got. To, I mean, the, the the thing with being into the Beatles is you have you you see it as a journey. So mm. what's amazing about those early records is when you think, okay, so th- you know, three years later, four years later, they're doing "I'm the Walrus," and it's about that journey, mm. which is and very. And also, they almost, are the ones just, that um, that broke that mold. Yeah, but some of those songs, you just I go back to them, and they're so simple and they're so brilliant, and you know, like. You know, Jack, we, we sort of made a playlist of the Beatles and Queen songs we were discussing and Jack put on I'll Be Back from... It is called I'll Be Back, isn't it? Yeah, I'm just yeah. quoted Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> from Hard Day's Night and I hadn't heard that for years and it's just like, that is... It's so brilliant. And it's simple, but what's brilliant about it is it's on Hard Day's Night, which is when they're still very much, as you say, it's sort of churning them out, but it was John Lennon mm. just just slightly going in this different direction. There's this, like, weird minor-major modulation stuff going on. Yeah, there's a T.S. to Picardy at the end of every line. There's a T.S. to Picardy? It's a sort of Baroque technique where you end a a minor passage with a major resolution, which he had obviously picked up somewhere. And just thought, why do you have to just have that at the end? Why don't you have it at the end of literally every phrase? But it sounds weird, and it's something that makes you go a bit like. Oh, yeah, yeah. The well, my point is, you can. You, it's like it's great to hear that song because it's like, oh wow, you can see them just gradually flowering, you know, with mm. these just incremental chord changes, and then suddenly. And it's just... also not to sound too, too sort of defensive, but it's not a criticism that you would level at their sort of contemporaries, which is like Motown girl groups, which is no, but. 
when you listen to those, and I think it's interesting to listen to the covers that the Beatles do, mm. that for me distills what it is I don't like about their early mm. stuff is that they there's none of the grit or mm. emotion or like gusto or sweat mm. or you just don't feel like these people singing the songs have any experience of the things they're singing about. Yeah. Mm. Whereas you listen to the the originals, so like Twist and Shout's a good example. It's it's the most sort of gritty Beatles song at that point. And yet, <laughs> mm. compared to the original and previous versions, it's, like, really asinine. Yeah, I do mm. think that there's a Chuck Berry cover on with the Beatles, where George Harrison... I mean, I love George Harrison, but he can't do the Chuck Berry intro. <laughs> no. Well, and they were sort of children as, yeah. as well. Yes, so and yeah. it feels... It, and this isn't a criticism, this is just an observation. Mm. It feels like a version of love written about by someone who's never been in love and has never had sex. <laughs> so it's this odd... Like, all of the songs are a bit like, kind of... They made me imagine, like, a boy all dressed up in his sort of Sunday best meeting a girl's mum at mm. the front door and saying, can I go for a walk with Katie or whatever. Yeah. But there's no sense of any kind of urge or... I had to... this is, And again... Not having a go at them, <laughs> but I put. I was. I was just thinking, what was Bob Dylan doing when Hard Day's Night was out? Yeah, it was probably bringing it all back. Yeah, home it was is... bring all back home and, mm. and Highway sixty one. Yeah, Highway yeah. sixty one is sixty five, isn't it? I can't remember now. Anyway. Yeah, uh, sixty four, sixty five. Yeah, and I just because they on... had their weird sort of dovetailing where yeah. he went sort of more acoustic at the same time as they went onto the kind of more electricy sounding stuff. And I, I put on it's all right, Mar. I'm only bleeding. And it was just like, oh, it's compared to that, the Beatles sounded like Edwardian. Yeah, I think that I, I get that when I listen to, you know, the similar era Dylan, definitely. But then it's about thinking mm. about, well, John particularly was taking on those influences and doing stuff that was Dylan-esque with, say, Norwegian Wood in two minutes, you know. And I think that's what's... They're always they're pop artists at heart, you know, so... Dylan would write these sprawling folk songs, verse after verse after verse, and then the Beatles, it's kind of multiple influences, but they'd take the Dylan influence and turn it into, like, just a two-minute version of it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. But I, that... my thing with that is, like, Pet Sounds is... And, you know, Pet Sounds is... Pet Sounds came out the same day as Blonde on Blonde, didn't it? Which is quite a mad fact, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> But let me yeah. just get the date cool. on. And Freak Out came out the the week after. Really? Wow. Really? Because they're the, both the first double yeah, albums. Mad, isn't it? Mm. But Pet Sounds, as a response to Robert Soul, I think I said this before, but Pet Sounds is just like a universe ahead of Rubber Soul, I think. But, mm. but yeah. also not even up to Rubber Soul. So I think something that used to annoy me is is like this, and it's very much like a sort of rock documentary angle, yeah. Is that before the Beatles existed, everyone was just sort of sat having cups of tea <laughs> with their grandparents as the grandfather clock ticked, yeah. and then and then the Beatles released their first single, and suddenly the world yeah. changed. But so, yeah. it's complete Sex rubbish. Began for me in nineteen sixty. <laughs> Intercourse began for me in nineteen sixty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but of course that is. And I can yeah. understand how if you were sort of twelve or thirteen. So you do you think there's a kind the of Beatles narrative out, being is... peddled somehow? Then that there's the kind of you know in a kind of BBC Four documentary. There's the stayed 50s and then the Beatles came along. 
that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah but A, mm. w- there was other mm. stuff. And also, the Beatles now, and I, again, I grant that I can't put myself into the shoes of someone in the early 60s, but it it sounds staid. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So when, when I listened to... Um, oh, uh, Go Now, the Moody Blues. Mm. It's a belter. That's like what I'm mm. missing from those early Beatles albums, mm. is yeah. there's actually like a sense of sadness and loss in his voice. Yeah. Production on that is amazing as well, mm. isn't it? The piano. It's yeah. absolutely superb. Yeah. And that's a cover of a Motown <laughs> song, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. But I did really like, I do, uh, to be fair, I did really like, uh, I saw her standing mm. there, I really mm. like If I Fell. Yeah, it's beautiful. Which yeah. kind I love of if just I fell. jumps out of what to me is like, it feels like a production line of love mm. songs. And there's suddenly there's just this song yeah. that opens mm. up like a, like a beautiful flower. <laughs> it's <laughs> like a big bum. <laughs> Lame, think... sort of Beatles-esque metaphor, yeah. but it, it, it just knocks you out. It's great. I mean, it's again mm. that's Lennon being really interesting with the chords and stuff, isn't it? It does. Yeah. It does. You know, it's so different to all the other songs on that album. Mm. It's got that kind it's of very un-Lennon song as well. It's one yeah. that you could easily mistake for a McCartney because it's got such a sort of beautiful meandering melody in it. Yeah. Um, but it's got that. Like, it starts like E minor and then E flat major. It's quite unusual to descend yeah. like that. It's, it's, it's interesting that you often go into sort of a musical analysis of the songs because they're they're the only band I've ever seen on Wikipedia where every song has its own Wikipedia yeah. page. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I like that. And All the solo material as well, even Ringo albums. <laughs> but do you think that means that it's possible to find interest in a song that you actually forget you don't like? Because yeah. you're like, oh, this is where they use this instrument and this is where this chord progression happens. But you sort of forget that the song itself maybe isn't that great. Well, is it's a bit like what I'm saying with the I'll Be Back song where it's like that chord, yeah, like it's it's more exciting because it's the first time it's happening and it's like that development element of it, you know. There was a, a quote on the Wikipedia page for A Hard Day's Night from a critic, yeah. which kind of like gets to the heart of what I think I found annoying about the way the Beatles are covered, where this guy says, if you had to explain the Beatles' impact to a stranger, you'd play them the soundtrack to A Hard Day's Night. The songs, conceived in a hotel room in a spare couple of weeks between upending the British class system and conquering (laughs) America, were full of bite and speed. There was adventure, knowingness, love and abundant charm. And it's kind of that... It's yeah. like there's it's no quite... room for anything else there because they've destroyed a class system that's been around for, you know, <laughs> It sounds like years. the... Um, did you see Pitchfork did their Songs of the Year? It sounds like their description of wet-ass pussy. Yeah. <laughs> like basically, <laughs> you know, this is... Uh... There was it's so Pitchfork, mm. but there was one album, you know, on Wikipedia, it has all of the, like, ratings. Mm. 
Mm. So Pitchfork had given, I think, A Hard Day's Night 9.7 out of 10. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So funny. So stupid. So what does yeah. that mean? Yeah. To sort of, you, I don't think it's possible to retrospectively review albums. No, I think it I should think be banned. Bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. We really need 100%. to know what Pitchfork makes of with the Beatles. <laughs> it's so bizarre, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting the use of a decimal place in a sort of yeah. <laughs> Do you think there's a sort of load of hipsters in Portland or sitting around wondering whether it's a 9.6 album or a 9.7? But the like idea that in 7. 2015 or wherever they did that, mm. you know, a Beatles fan would go, oh, such a short of the 10. <laughs> like, what does it, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's about it from me. I'd just like to say all the best for Christmas and a happy new year. So you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We talked a lot about the early stuff then. So, But then what, how do you feel about mid and late period Beatles? Does your opinion change of them there then? Well, um, the songs get better. Mm. But I think something I'm interested to... Uh, let me just... I've, got, I've made some notes. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some notes under this Victoria sponge as well. Um, so before getting on to late Beatles yes, LBs, mm. what, so Jack, as a music man, mm. what do you think about Queen? Because I'm aware when I'm listening to all the early stuff, which, to be honest, in the main I didn't like, it would have been such a huge influence on Brian May and Freddie Mercury in particular. Mm. Mm. And I think Brian May is still kind of um, in awe of that stuff. But I'm guessing he was the perfect age to be a kid at school hearing songs about falling in love with girls for the first time from people who were sort of maybe more like him than American bands. So, so and, yeah, and it's interesting yeah. when you look at the love songs Brian May writes... Mm. They're often like sort of they they would they would sit happily in an early Beatles album. Mm. Mm. If that's not to give Brian May too high a praise or the Beatles too no, high a praise, depending on what side of the fence you're on. No. I mean Queen <laughs> were massive for me, probably more the first music I ever really remember hearing or like rock music was Queen. Great. Mm. Because I remember just the sound of those phasing harmonies and the i think the best of queen the black cover with the red border came out on cassette greatest it's one the best-selling album in the history of the uk 
Yeah, so my parents had that, used to listen to it in the car all the time, and I, uh, apparently I was obsessed with it when I was very young. I used to make them play it on every car journey in the way that most people listen to Baby Shark or something. Mm. Um, well, I think that I Queen and the Beatles have a Queen. similar appeal to children, and yeah. I don't mean yeah. that as a bad well, yeah, thing. No, yeah, I think you're right, yeah. It's kind of it's just sing-along, brilliant, memorable songs. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're brilliant. They're both sort of melodically, you know, something like Killer Queen is, you know, for a kid, it's as, like, the thing that grabs you as a kid is what grabs you as an adult. It's just one of those one-off, you know, melodies that is... It, you can't compare it to anything. What I always loved about Queen when I was really young is that if it was on the radio, you were immediately like, oh, Queen or on the radio. Because mm. you well, only have to listen to half a second of Queen to know exactly what it is because of the sound of those particular harmonies, the way that Freddie Mercury's sort of layered vocals phase... Mm. And Brian May's guitar sound, and I was just immediately into it. There's yeah. that great video of Brian May, kind of at the at a desk, taking apart Bohemian Rhapsody, where he says like mm. he, he says something like the Beatles were God, and he, he's referring to the fact they double tracked so many things, double double and triple tracked vocals and things. And I think that's what's really interesting because because the Beatles are obviously so much more restricted than Queen were in production wise. Yeah. But I wonder if they would ever have gone down that route because what Queen, what strikes out Queen is they have that extraordinary multi-layered thing where, like, Freddie makes a whole chorus of his voice and, you know, Brian May's guitar is this kind of regal-sounding kind of, you know, triple harmony kind of style. The Beatles never... Although they obviously used the studio and, and experimented with the studio in kind of revolutionary ways, they never really got into that hugely layering element. But maybe but that's that was a limitation recording on four track like yeah you could bounce onto eight tracks but that's that's it you know yeah yeah but they never really went the wall of sound route no mm. whereas yeah. i like, mean like you there's some stuff on abbey road like because where it's three mm. parts all double tracked yeah you know yeah. that is you know, if you listen to the i think well the biggest sort of sonic similarity with queen and the beatles is you've got three-part harmony that's mm. absolutely immaculate in a four yeah. piece where you've got three singers who can hit the middle of every note every single mm. time. Mm. And it's such a in, dis, distinctive sound. It's absolutely yeah. Nuts. I think what I'm trying to say is that Queen's stuff is like, because it's so layered, and I, I love that about Queen, it mm. reaches this level of like pure artifice. It doesn't sound like people singing in a room. Yeah. Whereas mm. the Beatles, it was always, despite the studio trickery, there was still that element where... It That's wasn't. true, but also when you break those down, because I've played around with a mixing desk with um, Bohemian Rhapsody on it, which is very fun, but actually a lot of that sound is not... When you strip back the parts, there's not really much artifice on it. Or the mm. only reason it sounds so sort of spacey is because Freddie is singing so accurately that all his yeah. parts phase. So mm. when you hear the same thing layered three times... It sounds like there's artificial phasing on there, yeah. and there isn't. But that's yes, because that's yeah. he was just pretty mercury. Yeah. But he, but <laughs> Queen's most their sort of best example of that layering and that phasing is in the albums where they were most restricted in terms of the recording studio. So their so their mm. second, third, and fourth album, mm. and it actually becomes less and less as the technology improves. Mm. Yeah. So they were still creating 64 and 128 track recordings out of like eight tracks sort of yeah all cobbled together yeah, yeah. 
it's a similar instinct that, um, and one of the things I love about Queen and the reason I love everything that's sort of bombastic and big, you know, I, I'm more of a Sergeant Pepper man than a White Album because I like people doing the absolute most they can right. with the tools that they're given. So, yeah. you know, Homogenic is my favourite Bjork album mm, as opposed to, you know, Vespertine or anything that's remit is to be like, let's go as big as possible. That's Maximalist. Why I like, you know, Wagner or whatever it is. Mm. And they had that same sensibility that Paul had in Sgt. Pepper where it's like, these are the tools we have, let's push them as far as they'll go. Yeah. But I think there comes a point when technology evolves where queen like what where, you know what are we going to do we've mm. got 128 tracks to play with let's yeah. go the other way and it'll sound more interesting mm. i think that the the main influence is what you've sort of touched on there which is the use of the studio as an instrument yeah and i think sort of queen took that sort of uh baton ran with it but also i think on brian may's guitar playing the brevity of the beatles Mm. Because one thing, you know, you might think Brian May is kind of ludicrous and you're not a fan of Queen, but he never outstays his welcome on a song. Yeah. He's never like noodling away for ages. Yeah. Um, live's a different question. <laughs> well, no, well, even live, because they gave him this 20 minute segment in the middle of the gig to, for Brian to noodle away and the others go off and get a drink, which is an absolute stroke of genius mm. because it means he can sort of have this slightly overblown guitar track yeah but it doesn't get it, it's not like every song gets extended to the point at which it loses its its catchiness or its mm. its punch what about get down make love on live killers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did you have that in mind when you used to play in a band with robin and do 10 minute guitar solos no, but the problem was i didn't quite have brian's mastery of <laughs> either the guitar, the effects, or the theory of music <laughs> to really pull it off. It's very it was all, it was bad, it was bad, I was bad. Still am. I pick up a guitar now maybe once every two months when I'm drunk and I try and play a couple of songs and I just end up swearing at myself and saying you're worthless and just putting it away. Oh, John. That's <laughs> uh, a feeling I know well. Have you tried playing the bass? Yeah, tried playing the bass. <laughs> Enjoyed that. Um, I think John Deacon is the great unsung hero of the Queen sound. Yeah, um, I'd agree that, with you there. Fabulous bass player. Anyway, Millionaire Waltz bass part is one oh, of the mate. great bits of bass. <laughs> even um, even the bass line to it's a kind of magic is really good. Mm. Sorry, I think that's a sort of that's definitely another Beatlesy influence on them. The way that his melodic lines, uh, Paul McCartney sort of invented a four piece baseline being part of a melody and mm. John Deacon's definitely a master of that. I was thinking about the differences before this um we started this um of differences between Beatles and Queen. Uh, because I think I've always although I love Queen, I always I, do, I I've just been trying to analyze why I don't love them as much as the Beatles. So I was sort mm. of trying I think I'm doing like the opposite of what John's been yeah. doing. And I think one of the reasons is well like we talked about this maximalism idea which Queen are obviously very good at, and that, like, as you were saying, Jack, about the Beatles pushing the studio to its limit and everything. But I think one thing the Beatles never were was melodramatic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the and Queen. That's true. I mean, Paul had those tendencies, <laughs> but he had the other three to uh, yeah. rein them in. But I see that. I can't as a... think of a Beatles melodram a melodramatic Beatles song. Yeah, but that's what people love about Queen, isn't it? 
Well, yeah. I I think it the Queen are consciously melodramatic. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're called Queen. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and I think so. I think Night at the Opera is a success in the way that I don't think the White Album is, because Night at the Opera is basically presented. As Robin's face. As we like, just did like, like a, a. I just did a Marcus Waring face when someone yeah, gets you skills did, test You did a meme. <laughs> yeah. It's it's it is a night at the opera. It is a concept album, and yeah. the songs are being presented to you as if you are at like a music hall show. Yeah, I really did feel like I was <laughs> at the opera, and the the yeah. the segues sort of undercut that that change between styles mm. but what mm. and now we come on to like listening to mid period and later beatles i cannot get on board with the jerk between levity and sentimentality in mm. their albums mm. yeah i i listened to abbey road and the white album today i'm i'm on just to reassure i'm not here to say they're bad albums mm. i just don't know how to navigate those albums yeah and i'm and, and and i said this on twitter i think when something kicked off on the show with ellis talking about the beatles and someone said well but you listen to frank zappa but frank zappa was never sentimental mm. and no. so he did silly songs he did sort of petulant juvenile always highly musically complex but you know, a lot of them about like going to the toilet or sex. <laughs> yeah, but there was every album had a kind of had a theme, and you sense that the person making it was in charge. Whereas mm. I, with the Beatles, just always feel, no matter how good the albums are, that they're just collections of songs right. in a random order. In those Queen concept albums, you've got you know songs like "Take Your Breath Away" very closely followed by a song like "The Millionaire Waltz." So surely that's a pretty mm. big gear change from sentimental but, love song into sort of pastiche. Well, no, because I think there's an authenticity to the Millionaire's Waltz in the way that there isn't an authenticity to... Rocky Raccoon. Yeah. I've actually got that written down. Yeah. Or Wild Honey Pie. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the, the, that's, there is, Wild yeah. Honey and Pie then you, is And just... then you're like, and, and just to make clear that I'm not a thick, mm. Julia and Blackbird... Are just you know they're in they're the one percent of one percent of songs yeah and mm. and Julia I was listening to it thinking I think this is the first time I've believed John Lennon believes what he's saying mm. that's mm. interesting yeah and yeah. I it's also think point. I don't like his voice I'll get it I don't like their voice or Paul McCartney's voice I don't like their voice. But I think that's interesting. Like, so I think that's interesting to think about the idea that it's too much of a jolt from the earnestness, the sincerity to the kind yeah. of levity. But that's a great. There's a great bit in the Jem Roberts book where I think George Harrison said it's funny and it's not funny at the same time. And I think mm. that's a great way of thinking about the Beatles stuff, is that there is this tongue in cheek, but they could be sincere, but then they could always pull it back, and that's kind of where. In that grey area, that's where the kind of beauty of it is. Whereas I think Queen could just be mawkish and sentimental. Mm. Yeah, were, yeah, yeah. I'm not, you know, I, as I say, I'm a huge fan of Queen, but like, they they could be very sentimental, couldn't they? Yes, I'm not anti-sentimentality at all. Mm. Mm. And you know, as someone who 
I don't know if you've discussed our love of Krista Berg on this yeah. show, Rob, but <laughs> I'm, I am not against, and I'm actually very pro judging someone on melody mm. and, and have, have no kind of, I don't really care what's cool or... Yeah. It's got to be authentic, and I just don't f- get that from the Beatles. Mm. I don't. I don't, you don't think get the authenticity. They, uh, not at all. Mm. In terms of like the album, if you were to play me Julia in isolation, I'd be like, "Give me more of whatever this is, because this is my bag." And mm. then the next song is something kind of like about pigs. Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, right. And whereas, like Zappa mm. could do the pigs thing. Yeah. But he wouldn't then confuse you with with Julia, right? Mm. But being confused is good, though, right? I mean, that's a good response to have. No, um, I remember playing you once the uh, Ween album. I really like the Mollusk. Oh yeah, that's great. Uh, it's a great album, which is full of incredibly silly songs, and then it's got a song called <laughs> "It's Going to Be All Right," which is like heartbreakingly beautiful. Yeah. And uh, John, you said like, "No, I'm not having that. That's just, this is too serious in a silly album." You know, like they've kind of broken the rule of the Zappa thing of like, kind mm. of don't give too much of yourself away or something. You know, <laughs> I, don't know. It's like... I mean, it's it's hard ever to judge an album on a first listen. No, of course, yeah, no, and th- this isn't a criticism uh, at all. No, it's more it's more just like, I think um, just to talk about that Zappa idea of like, if you're going into this realm of parody and satire, which the Beatles were doing, then like, how do you? balance that with also doing very earnest and very sincere songs mm. I, I don't have the answer really but is the roger taylor <laughs> song where he talks about wanting to have sex with his car is that pastiche or does he really, <laughs> no, just really love genuinely love his yeah. car oh man I, I made such a funny note when i was listening well, to please please me i, <laughs> I said um, <laughs> Are there any songs that aren't about love? Maybe about a car or ogres or something. <laughs> <laughs> but then, please, please me was wasn't. Hang on, I need to Google this before I say. It. I think please, please me might have been not banned by the BBC, wasn't it? Not banned, but for too what? excessive hand holding. Yeah, basically, <laughs> too yeah. much letter writing. Uh, it was not banned when first released in the UK, as some guy said. <laughs> no, so it wasn't banned. But um, I, I remember my dad saying that some people had an issue with please, please me because it. It just uh, you know, it alludes too obviously to sex. So it was a very different time. You but know, it's but okay. So around '65, the Velvet Underground were playing their first live gigs. Maybe even '64. Yeah, but they weren't it's doing. It's not them... sex in the sense that the Velvet Underground talked about sex. Yeah, but the Velvet Underground weren't on like national TV playing. Yeah, those songs. so. Mm. Are you are you arguing they're revolutionary in what they were doing or how they were received? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, bit of both. Bit of both. I but I think that's what Frank Zappa's problem was with them, was like, and this sounds like an idiotic thing to say, but he was like, that. he said people talk about the Beatles like they're God. They're not. They're mm. just very well-marketed pop band. Yeah. And that's very reductive of the Beatles, and I'm not saying that that's yeah. my opinion, but how do you separate the ludicrous reception that their music got with mm. the music itself, because mm. if you listen to it, even compared to Dylan, mm. like you can tell that Bob Dylan's had sex. You can tell that there's maybe a woman <laughs> in his room when he's writing a song. Yeah. Whereas all these sort yeah. of boys talking about going to a dance, and you just want to. 
Yeah, it doesn't secrete anything. Secrete? You just love the music of secretions. <laughs> but it doesn't. There's no. There is no. There's no sweat. There's no jizz. There's no. <laughs> there's spit. no spoo. Just quote there's the Franks. No, yeah. Because so so John emailed us the um the the because we were talking about Frank Zappa. John's obviously a big fan of Frank Zappa, mm. and John emailed us the the Texas Motel song, which is Frank Zappa covering. Which I didn't, I hadn't heard of this at all before. Which is 1988 tour he covered, Norwegian Wood, um, mm-hmm. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and Strawberry Fields in a medley, with a, a satirical medley about a disgraced <laughs> evangelical preacher mm-hmm. on American TV. And it's, I actually really enjoyed that. But he he uses yeah. the term "spoo," which I hadn't heard before, to re- to refer to secretions, but. That's good. Yeah, um, it's but a, yeah, the, it's. We, I think we said we weren't recording when we said it, but those the covers are sort of needlessly brilliant. They yeah, they didn't need to be that good. And... Jim once had a girl, or should we say, she once had a She showed him her room. Isn't it swell, Texas Motel? And I think that what I, I bet is the case that with the sort of bands he had that were always like supreme musicians on yeah. each instrument, mm. I bet it took them about half an hour per song. Yeah, there's, they're, they're just so, so adept, mm. weren't they? It was insane. Some of that Zappa live stuff where they just they got bored, so they played stuff like twice the speed. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah he's got this story where he used to have little signals he would give to the band in a sort of a, like a rock version of um, conducting. Mm. Yeah, he would often conduct his. Yeah, he was always his very band. good at that. And um, one of his signals was to twist a. A sort of a, an imaginary dreadlock, which meant reggae time, oh. <laughs> and they were doing a gig in Australia. So he, the start of the gig, he makes the signal. So they play the first song in reggae time. Yeah, and then the second song, he does it again. They play the second song in reggae time, and then I think it was Ruth Underwood or whoever was the drummer saw this glint in Zappa's eye. And he did it at the start of every single song. So he played an entire <laughs> entire two-hour show in yeah. reggae time. This, this reminds me of going back to the band we were in at school, John Koyan Skatsi, and, you know, we were trying to do very serious post-rock, but uh, the drummer, Colin, he basically <laughs> insisted on playing an electronic drum kit yeah. and refused to play... In a rock star, he, he insisted on doing a reggae beat. <laughs> so you can imagine Mogwai with a kind of <laughs> like that. It's so bizarre. I like the idea of the person who's like maybe their girlfriend dragged them out to see Frank Zappa. Yeah, for the only time, <laughs> and they were like came away from this concert going, "Why are they just playing loads of reggae songs?" <laughs> You just have to that's explain. So it's, it's kind of a joke that's two hours long and yeah. cost us ten dollars. That's bizarre, isn't it? Mm. The, that, that whole what's the, what was this guy's name? Jimmy um, Staggart. What, the, Jimmy Staggart, the, the disgraced yeah. uh, preacher. Jimmy Swaggart. Swaggart, yeah. Um, <laughs> you scumbag, you Swaggart. He, he he. I was like, like, that's a lot of effort to go in for this, like sort of like really weirdly niche uh, parody, sort of satirical song, you know. 
Well, he yeah. played on stage with with Lennon and Yoko. Yeah. yeah. At the film. Well, the, well, they played on stage with him to be. Yeah, and then yeah. somehow released the song they played as their own song. Who, yeah, Yoko and John. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that caused a bit of a rift because they released King Kong, which is mm. like one of the great Zappa standards. Yeah, as, as scumbag. Scum, a song called yeah. Scumbag. Yeah. Mm. And I, I'm not. I don't know a lot about Yoko Ono. Um, other than what I've learned from The Simpsons. But <laughs> she just shrieks for yeah, 25 minutes <laughs> yeah, over the whole, yeah. over everything. And yeah. weirdly, that makes quite a lot of sense in, mm. the, in the Zappa mm. world. In the Zappa world, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I was really into it for the first couple of minutes, and then obviously at some point... Someone's like, are you going to do that literally for the whole yeah. thing? And they're like, yeah. And then they yeah. put her in a bag for a bit. It was yeah. during the period where they really loved putting her in a bag, which is sort of literal scum bag. I think, is that the point? I don't know what their reasoning was. the story behind the, that gig though no i don't i mean the, the zapper at the fillmore was released as an album mm. because he had it's quite hard to keep holy on top of his band but i think that was the flow and eddie period where he had flow and eddie from the turtles mm. joined his band so he disbanded the mothers and then released a couple of solo albums and then had this new mothers lineup which were with him through the early 70s and that was part of their residency at the Fillmore. So I'm guessing mm. he just invited Lennon on stage. No, it was, it was the other way around. It was There's John. Uni- yeah, a journalist sort of tricked him into it by. Yeah. Um, but I think Lennon had mentioned in an interview that he was really into Zappa, and so they went round to Zappa's hotel room in the middle of his uh, residency at the Fillmore East, and sort of knocked on the door, and he tells it like he opens the door, and the journalist is there with his recorder out with John and Yoko. And they're trying to get this like sort of reaction out of him, where he's like, "Oh my God, it's John Lennon," and he just sort of like wipes his eyes and goes like, "Come in." Yeah. <laughs> and then they just have a chat, and he's like, "We're playing tonight. Do you want to come along?" Um, it was being recorded anyway for a live album, but then they agreed to split the tapes and then released the song that they yeah. played as their yeah, own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, John said to Frank Zappa, "You're not as ugly as I thought you were," or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I would like John Lennon if I met him. No, I don't think I would like no. Frank Zappa if I met him. No, no, no <laughs> fair, very fair point. Yeah. In the same but, room. Yeah. but do you guys think you would like John Lennon if you met him? No, I no. think he'd be very acerbic, very cutting. But um, I loved that watching that concert, and it was really, I thought I just find it amazing because, like, I think that's a really good point you made, John. That that it, it's like they're making a cameo in Zappa's universe. Like, it doesn't make sense if you're following the Beatles narrative, and it's, like, so bizarre. Like, two years ago was the rooftop concert, and then this is just a completely different John Lennon in this other world, and mm. I thought it was, like, something incredible about watching it. And you can, like, he gets given that guitar, which he, is Frank Zappa's guitar. So yeah, Frank Zappa's SG. It's yeah. pretty off-the-cuff stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they sound great. I mean, they sound yeah. wicked. Like, yeah, he's, yeah. he's singing on top form, and it's before he'd, like, lost his bottle with... 
playing live and things, mm. obviously, because they really rock it. They do but you know I mean? That's yeah. probably one of the... And you could say this at any point in Zappa's live career, but what, it would be one of the greatest rock bands assembled in terms of the musicians. So mm. it's always going to sound amazing, even if you don't yeah. like the music. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Paul McCartney was a big fan of Freak Out. Yeah. And mm. Zappa asked for permission. He called Paul McCartney personally mm. to ask if they could basically rip off a lot of stuff from Sgt. Pepper in in We're Only In It For The Money, yeah. which is sort of a, if people don't know it, is like a sort of um, a parody of hippie yeah. culture yeah. dressed in a kind of nightmarish vision of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Mm. But do you think that Paul, because I've always thought of that album as a, a real swipe at the Beatles and... A lot of it, there's a little sort of slightly bitter undertone with Zappa. I think with with Zappa, it's very hard to work out what his intentions are. You know, there, I mean, a part of him did love the Beatles, and he said he loved Strawberry Fields at one point. It is a piss take of, I guess, of the mass popularity of it. And that's and mm. he, I think he thought that they were kind of, I don't know, I, I don't get the argument that the Beatles are selling out by making Sgt. No. Well, Pepper. that's the thing. Do you not think there's a slight undertone of sort of resentment? No, I, I don't think he. I don't think he thought they were selling out, and I don't think he th- resented them. I think he had a, a really intense mistrust of people thinking a product is a movement. Yeah, and that's not anti-Beatles because they're not the ones you know coming up with their like marketing strategy. If at all, that was really being done in any kind of coordinated way. I think what. Frank Zappa couldn't bear was hypocrisy mm. and people sort of buying an ideal without knowing what was going on. So right. we're only in it for the money is definitely a swipe at the Beatles, but it's more a swipe at counterculture. And yeah. I think that's what's so interesting about Frank Zappa is he looks and sounds like a, he would be a sort of a counterculture yeah. figurehead. Yeah. But actually he's saying... Free love is a product you're being sold. Yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting. He did always feel I, a little th- bit ahead of the curb in the yeah. kind of um, middle-class hippie thing. You know, he, looking back on it, he was right. It's why critics always hated him and were sneering about him is because he was sort of sneering six months before they were. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I think would have made Zappa split, spit blood is a line from A Song on a Hard Day's Night where the line is, I don't need to kiss or hold your hand, I'm happy just to dance with you. That was That is like the absolute epicentre of what he thinks is bullshit. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether it's the Beatles or, you know, the latest sort of teenage pop sensation in America. He was like, my reaction to that, I think, is perhaps similar to what his would have been, which is, who is that for and who is it about? Because no one has ever felt that. Mm. No mm. teenager has ever felt like that. Yeah, it's such a new Yeah, but I'd rather existence. have that than Zappa talking about bogeys or something. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but okay, that's yeah. a personal taste thing, but, yeah. but I just don't know who, who that is for. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When we were talking to Ellis, he said that one of your main criticisms of the Beatles was that they're not sexy. Which I completely agree in those years. But then, you know, songs like Come Together and, you know, some of the, you know, She's So Heavy. song? 
It's got no growl. It's got no thrust. And it's called to come it. together. It's a thrust. Yeah, but okay, so it means jizzing, but that doesn't make it sexy. <laughs> it doesn't mean spewing. Well, I mean, it's pretty. It's it's it could, it's about sex, and even some of those early songs, in a way, are about sex. But it's not sexy. Mother Superior, jump the gun, sounds terribly dirty. I think. But would you say Benny Hill is sexy? No, it's about sex, but it's not sexy. Yeah. Do you think Queen is sexy? Is John Deacon sexy? Is no, I don't Alan think Queen is sexy. Pants? Uh, personally, I find Freddie Mercury very sexy, but I yeah. don't think Queen's music is sexy. But I do think it's got, it's got a bit of like sweat, mm. and I think tie your mother down, something like that. Yeah. It's quite a sexy song. What's happened? What's come up a couple of times as the criticism for Beatles, uh, 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 for the Beatles is Matthew E. White said this is that they're not funky. I think mm. this is the thing you're getting at as well is that, like, aside from them not being that kind of loose groove to a lot of their records, it's all, it's all, it, I'm not explaining it very well. It's very yeah. jaunty. Yeah, there's that jauntiness, mm. but it do, I guess it doesn't have that kind of, as you say, sweat, bit of grit to it. But also, I'm not saying they're wrong for being popular or loved or writing love songs or not being sexy. I'm not saying that that's bad, that makes them bad. I'm just, I'm trying to understand why I don't get on board with them and that's what it is for me. So, like, when people say Beatles or Stones, Mm. I'm neither, but I would... There are chords in Rolling Stones songs which are just sexy. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Like, um... If like the opening bar of um, Honky Tonk Woman, yes, yeah. the opening mm. guitar part in Honky yeah. Tonk Woman. I mean, it's you just pure know sexual thrills. You it really know is. the person playing that guitar is great in bed, <laughs> just because of the. It's something yeah. about it the that you're like, okay, touch. he's he's been around the block. Mm. Yeah, it's got a groove that that, that isn't present in any Beatles song. Yeah. We'll definitely give him that. So I, before this, I sort of went through some things thinking about how to compare Beatles and Queen. So mm-hmm. can I go through some of those? So I thought my, my 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 one I think that's interesting is I think if you people who are really into the Beatles are, are into the sixties. Do you know what I mean? Because the Beatles tell the story of the sixties, and if you're really into that historical period, there is yeah. no bad record that was made in the sixties because everything is mm. part of this narrative. So this is sort of James's theorem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so uh, it's all kind of social history. Yes, exactly. Mm. So, even, so what you're saying about early Beatles stuff is like that's still part of the story. So that's still why I appreciate it. So whereas with Queen, it's like I'm not as interested. Maybe I'm not doing this dreadful thing of saying '70s was the decade that taste forgot because that's stupid and rubbish. But I do think that there is something so much more interesting about that kind of flashpoint of the '60s where everything that was orbiting around it. And I think that's what draws me to the Beatles more. But then you could also say that, like, for a lot of people, the 60s didn't happen until the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Because it's a bit like a a very valid point Ellis makes about Britpop, is that actually, unless you were living in Camden or certain parts of Manchester... Britpop wasn't something you really experienced in your daily life. No, 
No. And until you were 18 yeah. or went to London for the first time or went to Manchester for the first time. Yeah. And in the same way, if you're a 12-year-old girl listening to the Beatles in 1964, you actually don't get to live that re- cultural revolution until you're 18, 19, yeah. 20. Yeah, so it's a kind of mm. historical way of looking at it, I guess. Which yeah. the same yeah. way that whenever you see a programme... Again, it's another thing Ellis says a lot, but he's, he's right. You see a Shane Meadows programme set <laughs> yeah. in 1981. Yeah. Ev- everyone's living room looks like it was all bought in 1981. Yeah, yeah, there's a goth and there's a new romantic at school and there's a punk and it's just everyone was but wearing all, clothes from the 70s. But in the same way that in 1969, if you went to someone's house, there wouldn't be, like, psychedelia posters everywhere. Yeah, no. Because people's... Living rooms looked like it was the fifties because yeah. people don't change their <laughs> living rooms every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so this idea point. that like the Beatles came along and suddenly, in the space of six months, everyone's lives and clothes and experiences. And, yeah, but it's it's not quite mm. that. I don't think I'm saying that I like the sixties because suddenly everyone's lives changed. I like that kind of normality sitting alongside this extraordinary music that people might have been listening to and the kind of gradual developments and, you know... But is the mm. danger, really, that we only experience the Beatles in the 60s through sort of BBC4 music documentaries? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we definitely very much see it through the lens yes. of the 90s as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, and and the, the similar thing in the 70s is that I, I can't really imagine a... I mean, no sort of disrespect to a band like Queen, but I can't imagine Queen ever being, like the coolest band to be yeah. into but then the 70s was very much a reaction to the 60s and yeah. the 60s aesthetic is what i considered cool having grown up in the 90s sure whereas we, the eight like the 80s for me is absolutely like disastrous in terms of taste and yeah this is this is the point i sort of was wanted to make with the 60s thing as well is the idea that because the beatles music is so rich in its historical context you can imagine books being written about like the Beatles and culture, the Beatles and society, what the Beatles meant at this historical moment. Whereas I think Queen, which is still why I, a reason why I love them, Queen are much always much more outliers, aren't they? They're never mm. they don't seem to be cool or part of anything. Like if you were to write a book about Queen, it would probably just be about Queen. Do you know well, what I mean? They had triple, quadruple the shelf life for the Beatles as well. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. There are people that grew up with all kind of era. I mean my cutoff with Queen is pretty much late 70s maybe yeah. the game what year is that 1980 uh yeah but then queen, queen only had double the beatles shelf life really oh no mm. maybe triple what was the beatles eight years seven years okay so it's triple eight years but i think what's interesting and a really good comparison is the reason the beatles are cool is because they only spent two or three months making an album whereas Queen would spend a year. So by the time they had transferred their thoughts into an album, it was kind of six months out of date. Mm. Mm. So because they're, in fairness to them, putting so much into the recording and making sure everything's perfect, when it comes out, people are like, haven't you heard of the Sex Pistols? And they're like, oh, shit. Or they do their disco album a bit too late and it doesn't quite work because there's sort of a tussle going on Mm. between the rock and the funk halves of that band. Mm. I think you could write quite an interesting book about Queen and culture, especially 
I would recommend to anyone uh, Somebody to Love, which is a story that sort of tracks Freddie Mercury's illness with the global story of HIV, yeah, yeah. which is fascinating. Mm. But it just it so happens that no one has written that book, whereas <laughs> there are 50 of those books about the Beatles. Yeah, sure. Mm. Yeah, too many. So, so like Queen's foray into funk and... Uh, sort of gay club music on Hot Space would be mm. the best chapter of that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's fascinating, because I do think that's an interesting thing. And obviously it's something that isn't there in the Beatles' history, but the, the Queen, the, the gay history, or the gay reading of Queen is probably the one of the more interesting things socially, I think. In the same way that mm. the Smiths is a kind of... The, the, there's a, I'm sure that maybe there is a book written about this way, but already, but the kind of the way, you know, um, gay culture is kind of sublimated in the Smiths throughout the whole career is really fascinating. And that kind of, you know, there's something to be said about that. And there's something to be said about that with Queen, isn't there? Yeah, and I think part of that book would be about how the press treated them throughout their career because the part of the reason Queen were never cool is because almost without exception, the music press despised them. Mm. Mm. And you know it was at the NME. If you your your punishment for for any kind of like um, mistakes was going to have to review Queen live <laughs> because they thought they were just sort of this overblown pompous, yeah. um, you know, sort of dinosaurs of glam rock who had nothing to do with anything. Yeah, is that sort of specifically later period, or is that no? Always... That would have been like late seventies. But the thing is, anything you could, any any of these criticisms you could say about Queen, like that I'm saying, you could say, well, you know, Queen did write political songs, and they did write, you know, Hammer to Fall and songs like that. They they did engage with these social issues, but it was just never in a way. I think in in say the Beatles or other another band, they, they those political issues are more kind of implicit somehow because it's maybe it's an inherent sort of glam problem when you're tongue is quite firmly in your cheek and it's quite hard for you to be like and now a serious song about yeah whatever well it becomes like a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the press started being very rude to them even in interviews so then you start to avoid interviews or Mm. are buttoned up in interviews so then you get a reputation for being kind of arrogant because you won't do interviews it's like well who wants to do an interview with a magazine who asked you are you bent yeah yeah, there was a lot like, of just Why would rank. you be nice to that publication? Yeah, there was just a lot of rank homophobia surrounding it, definitely. And what it likes, it's a hell of a responsibility to sort of reflect your culture as it's going on, to go back to that sort of point. It's like, nowadays, we're lucky if we get, you know, the most interesting records of coming out of someone like, you know, Frank Ocean or something who makes mm. an album every six or seven years or, yeah. you know, a Radiohead record yet to a decade. Mm. And people get that time to yeah that's very true. hard to live up to the sort of because the 60s the acceleration of mm. culture happens at such a rapid yeah. level that the beatles documented it because they were making records every year yeah they did and they documented it but that, i think that's what's interesting is they documented it but it's almost in an unconscious way like i think in the guy chambers podcast he made that really lovely point about revolution nine being somehow reflective of the paris riots in 68 and maybe it's yeah. just the coincidence of timing but it does seem like there's this like beautiful kind of symmetry yeah 
And the Beatles put the hours in in terms of, you know, reflecting the avant-garde. Like, mm. you know, there's nothing in Queen's output that's, like, deliberately avant-garde. You know, they weren't going around, you know, listening to, like, Luciano Berrio or whatever and trying to make, you know, art music. They were a rock band that turned into a pop band, really, for yeah. me. You're looking very pensive. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm thinking about what you're saying. No, Queen never tried to make art rock. They tried to make music that an awful lot of people would like mm. and make it to the highest possible standard and yeah. a big and that is not going to make you popular <laughs> with critics yeah it doesn't make you popular with critics but you you couldn't fill Wembley with critics no um mm. but I think one difference is and this is not a criticism of the Beatles but they the Beatles must have been the worst live act in the history of music <laughs> Because wow. that, I mean, in terms of the experience of being, oh, at to the see, gig, oh, right. yeah, 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 yeah. I don't mean like performing. But yeah, yeah. Like, if, if, uh, if you put me in a time machine now and said, "Do you want to go and see the Beatles in 1965?" I'd be like, "Absolutely not." It'd be like an anxiety. Yeah, it'd dream. be awful. Yeah. yeah. But I think it'd what, be like, yeah. Do you want to go to a football match, but you can't actually see the football? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and everyone's you can't screaming. See, you can't see the football. <laughs> you can yeah. See all the footballers. Yeah. <laughs> I get that people think Queen are kind of like idiotic or whatever but i think one thing i could say that is a hundred percent true about queen is that the audience's response to both their albums and their live gigs was at the absolute foremost of their thinking mm. so yeah. they wanted to make live shows yeah. whether it was lugging truckloads of kit across jungles in in argentina and bribing security guards and politicians to get gigs on that never been put on before or whether it was doing the rainbow in 74 and 75 they wanted that show to be the best they could possibly mm. do for that audience at that moment in time yeah and mm. I, I think they would have looked as so brian may said we we wanted to use the studio as a tool like the beatles did we just wanted to put more focus on the live side than mm. they yeah. did mm. and i'm aware that the beatles couldn't they could not serve the market live mm, that yeah. they had. But, like, Brian May would have a nervous breakdown if he was playing guitar at a Beatles gig because it's it would... Yeah. What do you do? Mm. Mm. The one thing that we... I think is probably the most controversial point that I've made on the Beatles podcast is we were talking to... I can't remember who it was, but about um, Freddie Mercury's live vocals. Mm. And for me, as a uh, massive, massive... Freddie Mercury fan, the greatest studio rock singer. Does it not make you a bit sad when he bottles all the high notes on stage? I can't believe it. Well, <laughs> no, it's interesting what you say. I, we've discussed this quite a lot on the Queen pod. My point was, just to rub salt in the room, that Paul McCartney is a better live vocalist than Freddie Mercury. Well, you, that's, I mean, laughably inaccurate. <laughs> I mean, that's so, that's so, that's the stupidest thing I've heard this year. Even <laughs> and this is recorded in 2020 when a guy's <laughs> telling me that Bill Gates is trying to inject a microchip into my arm. That's, that's, that's objectively thick. Sorry, Jack, we've not met yeah. before, but I feel confident enough to tell you that's objectively thick. It's um, true. I don't so, actually believe it, but it is out there. So I just wanted to preempt. So the, the point about Freddie's live vocals is I so I love a reaction video mm. more than the next guy. <laughs> more than the but I like video. them from professionals. And there's a really good, and I learned so much from watching it, as this wonderful uh, opera singer 
watching Freddy and it's genuinely for the first time. It's not a pretend, you mm. know, when it's a pretend reaction video on YouTube yeah. and you're like, yeah, you, you know what's going on here. So she's watching uh, Live Aid and she watches, um, I think, Somebody to Love from... It's not Montreal, which is the best... It's, it, no, it's from Montreal. It's not from Milton Keynes, which is the best version. Anyway, what was so interesting to me was the amount of points at which she said, oh, he's straining or he's using a growl because he can't get that note or, or all mm. of the things he was doing that were wrong... Whereas I'd sort of, from clickbaity 10 best live gigs, just assumed that Freddie Mercury's voice was perfect all the time, which is not. Yeah. I think the thing I would say, and I've had to sort of wrestle with this, is that were he the studio singer he was on stage, those gigs would not have the power that they do. Because mm. there's something about his voice, especially when he's in that middle range... And mm. you know, so at Live Aid, his voice was fucked. It was, it, he came into that gig without the tools to do the job that he then did. Mm. And he did it in spite of that. And it makes the sound of his voice, the character of his voice so much better. Mm. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't swap it for anything. I would rather it be how it is than for someone to watch that video and go, he's the best singer that's ever existed because every single note is clear and perfect because mm. what he mm. does to get around those and he used he used to lose his voice all the time they had to cancel legs of tours because you cannot do what he is doing 80 nights mm. in 90 mm. yeah. without a lesson in your life an opera singer could do it because they're trained yeah. and they they inhale stuff and they McCartney do exercise. could do it, which was my point at the time. Yeah, but he That's... can't sing. He can't sing with the power that Freddie Mercury sings. Yes, you can. He, not, he, he not. can't. I, I completely agree with your point. And like, Paul McCartney was singing, you know, Kansas City, Hey Hey Hey, you know, screaming his lungs out to Little Richard songs from the age of twenty-one until the last like five years, and he's singing in that in a similar range, and it's always spotless. Which is where that point came from. And I don't actually believe it. I just thought I'd uh, <laughs> bait you into giving me a brilliant answer, which you have. <laughs> I don't think he's singing in the same way that Freddie Mercury sings. I'm not saying he's... That's a, let's not look like a, a qualitative judgment. He's, n he's not trying to project in the way that Freddie Mercury yeah. is trying to project. I agree with John. And mm. I think it's important to think about, you know, Freddie Mercury could sit at the side of a stage in front of like 10,000 people and say, let's have a bit of fun and do this incredible vocal back and forth. And, you know, that's Freddie. Paul McCartney is not going to do that and say, can everyone sing Fish and Finger Pie from Penny Lane in front of 10,000 people? Because <laughs> it's just not, that's, they're very different artists. You know? yeah. Like Paul McCartney's voice is amazing, but there's no one like Freddie Mercury who can sing to that many people and touch that many people. No, I in a live agree. setting, I think. I completely agree. Yeah. You know. So that was John Robbins. What an enjoyable chat. Memories coming flooding back from uh, being a little bit loose towards the end. But uh, it was a great evening. Yeah, the noise of cans being opened does permeate the recording. But it was great. I hope you enjoyed it for its kind of festive quality uh, and didn't get too annoyed with John's sometimes quite kind of extreme viewpoints about the early Beatles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a shame that we didn't really get on to like more of the 
objectively brilliant Beatles stuff in the later catalogue. We really did focus quite a lot on Please Please Me, which I must say isn't a record I'd listen to very much. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's just John's sort of interested in that genre and about... It's that kind of thing of like, well, you know, obviously there's stuff they could wanted to express but couldn't because of the medium, you know, and then mm. part of the joy of the Beatles is the way they grew up before our yeah. you know our eyes you know so it's like john sort of couldn't he sort of couldn't leave that behind in a way <laughs> you know you were, yeah um yeah well it's great fun we hope you hope you enjoyed it maybe not as much as we did but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was uh yeah it was it was very fun and um you know who knows maybe we'll get him on next christmas to talk about yeah that'd be great the, uh, oh that could be a regular catalog. thing couldn't it yeah, exactly. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening. We wish you a very, very Merry Christmas or whatever you are celebrating in this holiday season. And I hope you're getting through these kind of odd times. Mm. Um, and if the podcast has you know, brought you a bit of solace and joy in the shitstorm of 2020, then that makes us very happy. Yeah. Yes, have a great Christmas, New Year, celebration, holiday time. And yeah, <laughs> stay strong because it's, it's pretty horrible at the moment. Yeah, so hopefully we'll be, uh, you know, back in 2020 if mm. uh, you guys want any more. And, yeah, we're, we're letting it percolate some potential names. Well, this short list of kind of dream guests. We just saw a video on Instagram of Goldie singing Fool on the Hill, so he's kind of, uh, we'd love <laughs> to have Goldie. He's shot up to number one. On yeah, the <laughs> that would yeah. be bloody brilliant, though. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Do rate and um, sub- donate to the show if you feel the need to. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for all your kind words and emails and stories that you've shared. Hopefully we'll share more of them in 2021. Indeed. Goodbye. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.